0: Paul said to the church at Galatia, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. In other words, bear one another's burdens. Impersonate the Lord Jesus. Be like Him, the one who did not please Himself. We're to bear each other's burdens. We're to build each other up and not just drain each other.
1: Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible-teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Broge. Dr. Broge is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in Romans chapter 15, and in a message entitled, Christian Unity, we're looking at three marks of a healthy, unified New Testament church. As we pick up, Dr. Broge notes that one of the marks is a congregation that's not seeking or satisfied to please others, but one that's committed to pleasing and satisfying God. He also looks at the difference between neighbor-pleasing and men-pleasing. Let's join Dr. Brogy.
0: But of course, there are no contradictions in the Bible. The Spirit of Truth inspired it all. There's no contradictions at all. And to add to add fuel to the fire, he said this to the Colossian church. Slaves... And all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service, as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. In addition, he said to the church at Thessalonica, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Obviously, there's no contradictions between these texts in 15 and verse 1. We're not to confuse neighbor pleasing, which God commands in this verse, with men pleasing, which God condemns in other scripture. When you please men, you're compromising yourself. And in a negative sense, it's the opposite of pleasing God. People flatter people in order to get something, in order to gain something from them. It's a selfish, self-centered kind of motive but what he's speaking here is other-centered. It's not about me. It's about the body of Christ and the health of that local assembly and what we can do to build up that church. So Paul, when he speaks here of pleasing his neighbor, he qualifies it in verse 2, notice, for his good to his edification. Do you see that? We please our neighbor for his good to his edification. In other words, when you come to church, you don't ask the question, what do I want? You ask the question, what do you want? Not what do I need, but what do you need? And if every person in every born-again Bible-believing local fellowship had that as their attitude, some people would be breaking the door to try to come in. And interestingly, the word please here, it has kind of a double nuance in the original. It means to please through serving someone. And Paul gives us a theological foundation for doing it in verse 3. Notice what he says, for, here's the reason, because even Christ did not please himself. Now hold your finger here and turn to the book of Philippians. If you're new to the Bible, right after Romans, you go through 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and then you come to four short books, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Go everywhere preaching Christ. It's easy to remember. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and go to Philippians chapter 2, because Paul further explains this simple statement made here in Romans, that Christ, even Christ did not please himself. He is our example. Christ of all people the second member of the Trinity, is to be our example. And if anyone ever had the right to say, I'm going to do it my way, it was the Lord Jesus. But he didn't. The one who created the universe, the one who left the fellowship of the Holy Trinity, the one who was worshipped by angels, took on the form of a servant. And he became a man, and we read here in verse 8, notice, being found in appearance as a man... He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. With great humility, he went to the cross and he experienced the horror of having nails driven through his hands and his feet. In addition to that, he experienced shame as he was publicly crucified naked as they exposed crucified individuals. And as he hung there, he was mocked, he was made fun of, But the worst part of the crucifixion was not the physical torment that he went through. The worst part of the crucifixion is that he was forsaken by God himself. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The one who knew no sin became sin. He became the receptacle of sin. And that perfect, precious fellowship that he had known from all of eternity past was for the first time broken. Now, the Father did not force this upon the Lord Jesus. The Bible describes Christ's death on the cross as an act of obedience. That presupposes free will. It was the Father's will for him to become the substitute, but he willed to obey. He had a choice, and he humbled himself through his arrest, through his trial, through the crucifixion, and through the most climactic part of the crucifixion where he is forsaken by the Father. And so literally this verse reads that Jesus humbled himself, literally it says, even a cross kind of death, a cross kind of death. Now remember the context of this verse, in this chapter in Philippians, he's speaking about unity in the local church. And he prefaces this statement back in verse 3, notice, he tells us, do nothing, from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And so Paul is reminding these Christians who want to be self-assertive, who want to disrupt the unity of the church there at the Rome. He's saying, don't forget the cross. Don't forget the Lord Jesus. When he took on humanity, he was not pleasing himself. And then to substantiate that, notice what he quotes, the Old Testament. Where does this come from? Do you see the change of typeset there in your Bible? That tells you it's an Old Testament quote. Where does it come from? Don't look at me. Look down under your Bible. Find it. Where is it from? Anyone? Anybody? Psalm where? Psalm 69. There it is. It's from Psalm 69. Now, I want to highlight that in your thinking this morning, because Psalm 69... Is one of the great messianic Psalms of the Old Testament, like Psalm 22. Line upon line upon line upon line upon line of prophecy is described a thousand years ever before it happens when King David writes not of himself, but what the one who would come through his loins, who would come from the house of David, would ultimately do. I have it opened in front of me in Psalm 69 and verse 4. It says that the king would be hated without a cause. It says, those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Question. And he speaks here of his own people. Did they, the Jewish people hate him without a cause? Absolutely. John records he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. In fact, the very first time he goes into the synagogue there in the city of Nazareth, and he opens up. The prophet Isaiah that is handed to him and he speaks of his fulfillment of that prophecy. The people are filled with anger and rage and they bring him to the brow of the hill. Some of you have been to that very spot and they want to throw him over the cliff. They hated him without a cause. Here in verse 8 of this psalm, it says, I've become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's son." Was Christ rejected by the biological sons of his mother, as David wrote? Yes, of course he was. Mary and Joseph had normal marital relations after the Lord Jesus was born. And Mark's gospel tells us, by name, four of his brothers, and then that he had sisters. It's in the plural. So there were at least six children in the home that he was raised in. And the prophet said, David said, that he would be despised by his own family. Now, God doesn't give us the reason for that. I can imagine what it would be like. I mean, think about it. Jesus is growing up in a family of seven children, and he never, ever has to be disciplined, never, ever has to be rebuked, never, ever has to be corrected. Everything he does is perfect. I mean, wouldn't it be tempting to say as a parent, can't you be like Jesus? And for whatever reason, they concluded, he's out of his mind. They said in John 7, for not even his brothers were believing him. It happened, just like King David said, a thousand years ahead of time. He also, in verse 10 of this psalm says, when I wept in my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. David prophesied that Messiah would agonize in his soul literally with weeping. And who could doubt that as you read the account in the Garden of Gethsemane? As He faces the cross, and the turmoil of the cross was not the physical aspect of it. Jesus was willing to undergo any kind of persecution. He was willing to practice what He preached. The agony of the cross was the cup becoming in essence the object of the Father's wrath. This perfect, unbroken, loving, eternal relationship there for the first time was going to be broken. And He sweat blood when He thought about it. Literally. Hydratamosis where the capillaries under your skin because you're under such pressure literally begin to burst. And He sweat blood. And the writer of the Hebrews says he did it with loud crying and tears. No one has ever suffered like him. And then it says here in this same psalm in verse 11, when I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. This messianic psalm says that the Lord Jesus would become a byword by his own people. And he is even to this day. I've heard Hindus, I've heard people who are followers of Muhammad, I've heard Buddhists, I've heard so-called Christians, along with Jewish people, use the name of Jesus in vain. When I was in India last year, I asked one man if he had ever heard the name of Jesus. He said, I've heard it, I don't know anything about him, but I hear people use his name all the time as a swear word. Yeah, even in India, it's a byword. No one ever says, oh, Muhammad, or oh, Buddha. Oh, Krishna. No, they use the name of the Lord Jesus in vain. And the prophet said this would happen. It says, those who sit in the gate talk about me. Those who sat in the gate were the rulers of the nation. And God predicted that they would, in essence, mock him. And it defied all logic. He cast out demons. He gave blind eyes sight. And they couldn't deny it. He made deaf ears to hear and lame limbs to walk, just as the prophet Isaiah said Messiah would do. And what did they say? They couldn't deny the miracle, so they denied the source of the miracle. And they said, he has a demon and he is insane. Line after line after line after line after line over 20 prophecies here in the 69th Psalm. And every single one of them to the letter is fulfilled. And by the way, the Holy Scripture is the only book with prophecy There is no prophecy in the Quran or the Book of Mormon or any other book. Only the Bible has fulfilled prophecy because only God can foretell the future. And the only book he ever wrote was the Holy Bible. So it's very, very appropriate that the Apostle Paul would quote this Messianic Psalm. Look at it here in verse 3. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written... The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. The reproaches of those who criticized God the Father fell upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was reproached throughout His earthly ministry all the way to the cross. And yet the Bible says He did not seek to please Himself. He sought to please others. By the way, this is precisely what the Apostle Peter said when he wrote these words. While being reviled or insulted, you could render it. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his own body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you have been healed. By the way, our charismatic brothers use this to argue for healing in the atonement, but when Peter quotes the prophet Isaiah, by his wounds you'll be healed, he applies it not to physical sicknesses, but to spiritual sin that needs to be forgiven. Listen, he came not to please himself, and every time we take the Lord's Supper and I crush that bread in my teeth. I try to remember that like Christ, I am not to please myself. Then when I taste the tang of that juice, like the Lord Jesus, I am not to please myself. But that's what we do every time we sin. And that's what these Christians in Rome were doing. Remember the context, instead of exercising their freedoms in a godly way, they were doing it in a divisive way. And those who are weak were in essence attacking them. And there was this fight within the church. Paul said to the church at Galatia, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. In other words, bear one another's burdens. Impersonate the Lord Jesus. Be like him, the one who did not please himself. We're to bear each other's burdens. We're to build each other up and not just drain each other. But there are Christians in the church, they just drain you. And they go, here he comes again, Mr. Drain. Here she comes again, Mrs. Drain. They're going to suck it all out of me. Why? Because they're so full of themselves. And as a pastor, you pour over them, you try to help them, and try to give them the means to get past some of these sins that have just a hold on them and they're back all over again. Why? Because they're filled with self, pleasing self, doing their own thing. When we are to be other centered, And it becomes a great hindrance to the unity of the church when we're seeking only to please ourselves. Now that's the first mark here in Romans 15. The mark of a dynamic, healthy church is that a unified church is a strengthening church. Number two, a unified church is a scriptural church. So having just quoted Psalm 69 here in verse 3, the Holy Spirit of God brings to Paul's mind in verse 4, while he's thinking about the Old Testament, the value of the Old Testament scriptures in your walk with the Lord. Look at verse 4. For whatever was written in earlier times, you ought to write above those two words earlier times, Old Testament, because that's what he's speaking of. And one of my commitments from this pulpit is to give you a balanced diet. And for those of you who've been here a long time, you know that typically I teach a New Testament book and then an Old Testament book and then a New Testament book and then an Old Testament book. Why? Because of what the Old Testament can teach us. All Scripture is given by the breath of God Almighty and is profitable, Paul said to Timothy. And here he tells the church at Rome, for whatever was written in earlier times, was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures of the Old Testament, we might have hope. Again, the earlier times is a reference to the Old Testament Scriptures and is reminding us that the instruction and the encouragement and the application of the Old Testament did not exhaust itself with that error. In other words, the Holy Spirit of God moved upon those men of old not just to write for their day, but for our day as well. And when you read the Old Testament scripture, as you read biography after biography after biography, it instructs us with real living people. And you begin to see how folks were able to live above their circumstances by trusting God. And so he says they were written, notice why? So that we might have hope. And I suppose there's no portion of the Scripture that will give you more hope than the Old Testament. When you read people like Abraham and Jacob and David and Noah and Deborah and Ruth and Jeremiah, they just put steel in your spine. I mean, think about Jeremiah. He preached for 40 years. And for 40 years, he was ignored and spurned by the people of Israel. And he witnessed the demise of his own people as he prophesied and the Babylonians came and they carried away the southern kingdom. And he wrote about his heartbreak in the book of Lamentations. But through it all, he never lost hope. Now, unfortunately, when Christians today open the Old Testament in a church, it's like little puffs of dust begin to rise from the pews. Because that's the clean part of our Bibles. And that's the part that we read the least. But he's saying, look, there's a great source of encouragement in this. And I think it is so powerful that he would say this, especially because they're dealing with Old Testament issues in Romans 14. And he wants to remind them that though some of these things in the Old Testament were fulfilled and not binding certain days and diets, there's still a great profit in the Old Testament scriptures. And I think it's interesting that he comments on the Old Testament, especially as we think about it in our day, because there are pastors and theologians and seminary professors and so-called scholars who more than anything else love to attack the Old Testament. And they do it under the science of what's called higher criticism. And so they say, well, we're going to study the Bible and we're going to tell you which spots are inspired and which spots are not inspired. And so we have these teachers and professors who believe the Bible is inspired in spots, and of course they're inspired to spot the spots. And they say, well, this is the Word of God, this is not the Word of God. This portion is inspired and this portion is not inspired. But we're not to criticize the Word of God. We're to let the Word of God criticize us. And many of the spots that they have spotted as uninspired, interestingly, are the very places that the Lord Jesus spoke about. And Paul's exhorting us to read about these things here in the Old Testament. For instance, think about it. They look down at a man named Noah. They say there was no real person named Noah who had an actual ark and that there was a worldwide flood. And some of the pictures that we paint in our churches of the ark, they look silly. They look ridiculous. I mean, they they almost foster the myth. You see some little boat with all these animals and their heads sticking out. and It's just silly. And they say, that's just myth. That's not really happened. There wasn't a real man named Adam and a real woman named Eve. They were not the first people on the planet. No, there was this evolutionary process where they gravitated out of monkeyhood. And then maybe sometime there was a man named Adam and Eve. And so they, they put death before the fall instead of after the fall. And they criticize the account of Jonah being swallowed by a great fish and they poke fun at a, at Lot's wife being literally turned into a pillar of salt. And they laugh at the prophet Daniel because his prophecies are so incredibly precise. All they can conclude in their finite minds is that they were written after the fact between the two testaments that he did not live six centuries before Christ, but two centuries before Christ, and he was recording history, not prophecy. But again, what I find so fascinating is that the very text that they criticize are the very texts that Jesus tends to quote. In His omniscience, it's like He looks down the corridors of time to the last of the last days, and He sees the higher criticism that we would face. And so Jesus said in Mark 10, Have you not read, He who created them made them male and female? And then He'll go on and say, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He institutes marriage. What did leaving father and mother have to do with Adam and Eve? Absolutely nothing. They had no father and mother. They were the first who are a direct creation of God. But God is establishing marriage between a man and a woman. And so last week, one of the higher uppity-ups in the Episcopal Church came out again and said that marriage does not need to be defined between a man and a woman. And listen, these pastors, these theologians, these politicians, in the name of political correctness, who say that homosexuality is fine and we ought to embrace it and celebrate it, are liars. And they are contradicting the plain Word of God and the words of Jesus Christ. One of the longest sermons I ever preached is entitled, Is It Okay to Be Gay? And I preached it because it is such a hot issue in our day. And it's on YouTube if you're interested. And I went through every single passage of the Bible that deals with the subject. And the only conclusion you can say is, that text is wrong that that part is not inspired and that's what they're saying under the banner of higher criticism. Jesus used Lot's wife as an illustration for His second coming to be ready because she was not. And so He said in Luke 17.32, remember Lot's wife. In Matthew 24, also in reference to His second coming, He said, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Oh, there's a real fellow named Noah. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them away, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Likewise, when speaking of that coming Great Tribulation period, the worst time that human history will ever know, it's 9-11 multiplied by a million. Jesus said in the middle of the Great Tribulation, right at the halfway point, He said, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, the Bible refers to that event when the Antichrist will go into a temple there on the mount in Israel right in the middle of the great tribulation period and he will make himself out to be God. The abomination of desolation which was spoken through Daniel the prophet. When you see that, then listen up. He doesn't call him Daniel the historian, but Daniel the prophet. In like fashion, he said this to the unbelieving Pharisees. This generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. And then in the parallel account, he adds in Matthew, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of this sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The Lord Jesus linked the actuality of His resurrection to the actuality of the fact that Jonah, in his ministry the Ninevites, spent three days in the belly of a great fish. One pastor told the story of a little girl there in his church as she waited outside the Sunday school classroom for her parents to go to big church. And he noticed that she had a big Bible storybook under her arm. He said, well, what's that you have there in your hand? And he was being a little mischievous. And she said, well, this is my Bible. This is my storybook about the Bible. He said, oh, really? Well, what did you study today? Well, we studied about Jonah and the great fish. The pastor said, well, tell me something. Do you you really believe that Jonah was swallowed by a great fish? She said, "Of, of course, it's in the Bible. He said, her, you mean to tell me that you believe that a man could be swallowed by a great fish and live in that great, great fish for three days and survive? She said, yes, pastor, there's stories in the Bible and we talked about it today and God said it and I know it's true. Then he said to her, well, can you prove to me the story is true? And she kind of bit her lip and thought for a second. She said, well, when I, when I get to heaven, I guess I'll ask Jonah. And he said, well, what if he's not in heaven? said, then you ask it.
1: If God said it, we can believe it and we should seek to obey His Word and to please Him. To listen to this or any of the messages in our series from the Book of Romans, use the Search the Scriptures app, available for smartphones and tablets at the Apple Store or Google Play Store. You can also visit us online at searchthescriptures.org." or call and request Unity in the Church, program ROM68, on CD or DVD. Our phone number is 877-787-7478. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. You can also check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. And join us again Monday when we continue our look at Unity in the Church as we search the Scriptures.